Welcome back to Mud Between Your Toes, Year Ender 2020. Today's podcast, the last in season two, includes highlights from interviews with farmer Jack Milbank, councillor Adam Joggy, author DJ Connell, and the Dowager Countess Corder from Corder Castle. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, my guest today speaks to me from Queensland. He runs a cattle stud for a rare Zimbabwean breed called the Thule, but Jack Milbank's journey to Australia began in Kenya and later Zimbabwe. His parents escaped the Mau Mau Rebellion, but tragedy was to follow them across the continent. This is the story of a family whose roots stretch deep into the African soil and despite unimaginable personal hardship, have succeeded to forge a life well-lived. So Jack Milbank, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hi Pete, thanks very much for having me. Jack, it's safe to say that you are a salt stick with one foot in Africa, one foot in Australia, and your tackle hanging down in between. So it probably makes sense to start at the beginning with your family who moved to Kenya, what, in the early part of the 20th century. What drew them to the continent? Because despite the hardships of Europe, East Africa was still pretty much the Wild West, despite its reputation as a place of hedonism and glamour for the Europeans. Yeah, absolutely. I think my, my grandfather was a Yorkshireman, and so um, he was used to the, the wild winds and, and heather and, um, and I suppose the sort of grouse moors of the north. And after World War II, you know, everything was pretty miserable in, in England. And, um, you know, my dad was born in just before World War II. So uh, he never really got to know his dad until he came back in 1945. And um, I think the temptation for sunshine and, you know, the, the wild sort of attraction of colonial Kenya. Um, so they, and I had a, or he had a great uncle that went out there in 1908. So they had some sort of connection. And um, yeah, so always involved in the outdoors and wildlife and, and that sort of thing. And, and yeah, I suppose so the, the journey started then. And um, my my dad just grew up grew up on the plains in Kenya and um, never really uh, was supposed to go to Cambridge I think or, or or to finish school in England but just couldn't bear to leave Kenya again so you know we ended up just staying staying in Africa for as long as possible. But back in Kenya in the 1950s, you know, all of that uh, land of milk and honey changed for the white people, didn't it? Because of the Mau Mau uprising, by all accounts, to the outside world, it was a pretty scary time as it conjured up all these wild, crazy images of bloodthirsty oath-taking. I think in reality, only 32 white settlers were killed over the eight-year insurgency, but it, it did spell the death knell of British rule in Kenya. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think my, my dad left school and uh, joined the, the Kenya regiment straight away and where he had an interesting story. He fancied himself as a bit of a cross-country runner and um, his greatest claim to fame, aside from attempting to uh, beat the four-minute mile, was he, he ran in a race um, to, you know, like a regional qualifying race or something and ended up getting lapped by a, a Kenyan. 
who ended up being Kip Kino, who went to the Olympics and broke the broke the world record. So he didn't feel so so bad that he performed so poorly for the Kenya regiment in the in the sixteen in the mile race. Um, before your family left Kenya for what was then Rhodesia, um, your mother experienced something that was really disturbing and quite macabre. This might be a thing of myth, I don't know. But did she not wake up in the morgue with a tag tied to her toe? What exactly happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as you can imagine, there would have been some fairly wild parties in, in um, Machakos or Mathaga Country Club or, you know, generally, you know, it was well before my time. But mum was involved in quite a bad car crash and she, she uh, went into the back of a combine harvester and I think was in a coma for about five days. And they chucked her in the boot, took her to the hospital. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know the, the nitty gritty details, but yeah, they'd pretty, uh, pretty much thought she was a goner, and, um, but miraculously pulled through. And, um, you know, a lot of people uh, credit that, that little stint in her um, incredible um, temper and, uh, and quite, you know, quite uh, enthusiastic, personality that she was renowned for across southern africa <laughs> yeah jack, jack tell us more about the tuli uh, this is a indigenous zimbabwe breed uh, and indeed it's the one that you brought to australia or introduced to australia um, how how long has the tuli been around sure so it, it wasn't me who brought them into australia but it was the csiro so the csiro is the lead scientific organization in Australia. So they, uh, they I suppose, formed the um, Thule and Baran Consortium in which uh, John Frisch and Chris O'Neill and a consortium of leading scientists went to Rhodesia to try and, uh, I suppose, find some genetics that were more suited to Australian conditions. Um, I always think of it as um, a Brahmin is a little bit like my mother's personality, quite feisty uh, <laughs> and not, not something you want to corner in a corral. So the, um, whereas Thule's are very docile, uh, you know, very um, good meat quality, uh, no, no carving issues. And so I suppose that's where the, the um, tropical adaptation of their genetics suited perfectly for Australian conditions and why then the CSIRO, CSIRO guys went over there to to select the best of the Thule's to bring over to Australia. Um, and it, it's been a, a huge project that, that lasted 20 years. So obviously with the quarantine, uh, embryos were sent to the Cocos Islands and to surrogates and then those surrogates were born uh, sorry, the surrogates gave birth to the purebred tulis, which avoided the cross-contamination of, you know, any potential parasites, diseases, viruses that would have occurred if they'd imported livestock into Australia. So they were housed at Cocos Island before then being brought, the, before the progeny that they were embryo transferred, they were then brought over to Australia. And then together with the semen that was then were brought in, uh, so there was only nine bulls that were selected. Uh, so there was nine bulls, 74 heifers, and that was the start of the herd. But that was not a commercial herd. That was for research purposes with Syrah. Um, and it sort of went in fits and starts. And where where we 
um, I suppose where I got involved was starting to research this and um, with, with a very curious, you know, mind, we just bought a cattle property and I was looking at what sort of breeds and obviously I, I turned to Africa to, to look at, you know, it made so much more sense to have a, a tropically adapted African type breed because that's the similar conditions to Australia um, than a European or British breed, which just makes no sense at all. And this is only in 2013, so oh, okay. 2007 to yeah. 2013. So the research project sort of ended with CSIRO when funding was cut to CSIRO uh, by the Keating government. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I managed to track down the, the last sort of bits of Thule semen that was still from the, the import days with CSIRO. So it was from the 1990s. And then those last purebred Thule heifers. And, and so that's what forms the nucleus uh, of the herd that we, I suppose, going to redevelop a nucleus herd of purebred Thule's uh, so that we can now resupply and re-kick off the Australia, you know, the Thule, the purebred Thule genetics for Australia. Have the Thule as a breed generated a lot of interest in Australia? And also, uh, the, I, I should imagine what people like me want on our table. Uh, we want a, a cow that uh, can be easily grass-fed. Absolutely. So th this is one of the really interesting points is that as a, uh, you know, as a, a breed, they, and being in, Afri in Africa, they've genetically evolved over 5,000 years to, to survive harsh tropical conditions uh, or, you know, very dry conditions uh, lots of parasites lots of disease but also predators and so they have naturally evolved to be herd animals so they stay very close together and so one of the things we're doing on our farm which we, we've, is called heartwood and is um, you know a bit of a smart farm so we're playing with all the latest technology and gps trackers on every on every beast and looking at ndvi imagery and total dry matter maps to to look at where they graze and what their sort of grazing patterns are and if you're a fan of regenerative agriculture and, and good land management uh, what you want is uh, as as one of your previous guests alan savory would espouse to is is high intensity high intensity rotational grazing where lots of animals eat down the grass and then move on so if you think about a tuli's genetics it it sort of hangs together you know stronger as a herd and and so they they graze together they stay very close and that's their protection mechanism against other predators. And then they move on to the next zone. And, and because there's very sparse food, they are very efficient feeders. So they, they heavily graze a very small area and then move on and leave it. And so they, they, you know, they spread their dung there, they urinate there, they cultivate the soil, they, the seeds get dug up and then they move on and they don't come back there for a long time which is exactly what you want in a regenerative agriculture process instead of something like a Brahmin, which is evolved out of, you know, I suppose in India and other tropical environments where they've got a flight response. And so when you look at the grazing patterns of a Thule, which is aggregated and, and close together and intensive, and then they move on, uh, which has, so that genetic characteristic has a direct implication on soil health and then pasture quality and then you know the likelihood of success in those harsh environments compared to the flight response of a brahmin which you know disappears and disperses across the landscape and they 
they graze sporadically. So you end up with this selective grazing where what happens is the, you know, they're just picking out, picking out. And so what, what yeah. you end up with this statin grazing pattern is then a gradual decline in soil quality, pasture quality uh, and grazing management, which then ends up with this soil degradation. Jack, in my introduction, I mentioned tragedy followed your family. In fact, in 2001, your mum was murdered. Are you able to tell us about this? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's not not great timing uh, in in anyone's uh, calendar. But so I I just graduated from university in in November, and I started a new job in December, and then mum was killed in January. So it was pretty much uh, you know as I was, and I'd only decided to well, I hadn't actually decided to stay here. I, I had just graduated, and I was about to come home, and. But during that time, the farms were taken, their mum was killed, and um, you know, I suppose it, it really there didn't uh, seem to be a lot to come back to. No, and you know, as as feisty as mum was, she, she was still a, a wise woman and you know, a very smart businesswoman. Um, but I, I think it probably honed my focus that, um, you know the the risk to reward in Africa was, that, you know, that I, I could see the writing on the wall and, and things weren't getting better. And my brother was having a really tough time. And um, I, I just I think I made the decision then and there that you know stuff it. And of course, your brother Rob had uh, suffered a stroke at an early age, didn't he? Which left him severely disabled. This must have also come as a terrible shock to the family, particularly yeah, as he sounded yeah. like a great sportsman also. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we were obviously, uh, you know, all through that sort of, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, we had five Millbanks and, you know, all the sort of us Millbank boys, we, we played polo, uh, rugby and, and cricket, cross country, swimming, you know, we, we were involved in all sorts of things and probably absolute hooligans running around and, um, you know, so I suppose it was quite a, quite a dispersion of a, you know, sort of family dynasty in Africa, you know, small as it, as it was, but that's what it felt like to me as a kid. And um, yeah, so that with, with um, me leaving and then mum being killed and then Harry leaving and then my dad going to England and then Rob having a stroke. Um, I was actually traveling around the world with my wife at the time, uh, Jacinta is still my wife, but at the time we were traveling and I was actually uh, luckily staying with Harry in Kenya. And um, yeah, we, we got the phone call that, that Robert had the stroke. And so we were able, luckily were able to get straight down there. And I visited him in hospital in, in Joburg. And um, yeah, I mean, just such a, such a pity that, um, you know, I suppose the time that it took and, and Heinrich was so generous in getting him down to the hospital as quick as he could. And, sent his driver that drove all night, I think, to, you know, to get some of the drugs that he needed. But, you know, trying to get from Mbukwe's uh, to a hospital when you've had a, you know, brain bleed. And, and it, it just, I think it just took too long. And um, yeah, so Amanda's incredible. She, she's just, she's on Forrester and um, yeah, they, you know, it's not, I can't, it can't be an easy time on, at as, all. Do, as do many people in Zim. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, Jack, we're running out of time, but uh, I think if anyone wants to find out more about the Thule Cattle Breeders Association of Australia, they can go to www.thule.com.au. Thule, by the way, is T-U-L-I. Um, oh, great. Listen, Jack Milbank, I wish you all the best in your new life and your new continent. So thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, I'm honoured today to be speaking to the new mayor of the London Borough of Haringey. Councillor Adam Joggy is one of the youngest mayors in London. Born and bred in Haringey to a Jamaican mother and a Zimbabwean father, Adam epitomises the multicultural and ethnic heritage of North London. So Councillor Adam Joggy, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Good to be with you, Pete. First and foremost, congratulations on becoming mayor. And may I say, it was great to see you in a recent newspaper photo sporting a face mask of a Zimbabwe flag. I want one of those. <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed. It's, uh, it uh, is a huge honor and uh, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying every day of it. I mean, you have a huge job ahead of you. Do you think your mixed heritage is going to be an asset going forward? Sure, I mean, more than uh, my job, it's an asset to me as a human uh, being. I am able to uh, connect with, understand, embrace, acknowledge, celebrate, defend, champion uh, the parts of the world I'm from. I'm particularly part of my Zimbabwean roots um, as, as, well as, as well as the other parts of me. But yeah, I, I, I think it will be an asset because it means you can break down barriers. It means that people don't think that they haven't got a link to or a connection with the person representing them. I think that's important. So, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm carrying all parts of me with me as I carry out these. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit, bit about the role of mayor. Um, you are by charter the first citizen of Haringey and take mm -hmm. precedence over all other dignitaries in the borough, except of course, her Majesty the Queen, members of the royal family, and the Lord Lieutenant. It's a pretty kick-ass position to hold. Yeah, it is. Look, it's big. Um, and I think the amazing thing I've picked up over the last six weeks is that um, people for sure view the mayoralty probably more importantly than I realised. I mean, I, I, I hadn't, you know, obviously I, as a, as a backbench councillor, understood the role of mayor and, and and worked with my predecessors in different ways at different times. But when you are actually the mayor yourself, and when you have the chain around your neck, and when you are out and about at engagements, talking to people, meeting people, and you see the reaction of young people, older people, anyone and everyone, um, it, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's powerful stuff. And I think, um, as you know, that, you know, being first sister means you have to lead by example, uh, but you are, you know, one of a team, not a team of one is my approach. And I think that's, that's the approach I'm, I'm taking. I'm carrying everyone with me. I mean, you're facing a brave new world that is rife with unfriendly division between different groups of people or disagreement within a group of people. We now have world leaders who appear unhinged. And of course, we have COVID-19. And yet, I suspect your job is to try and bridge all of those divides. It is. And, I, and you know, it's interesting because this year has been like no other in living memory. Uh, it's been difficult for so many you know, people have lost loved ones, friends, family, neighbours, uh, in, a, in a way that is more difficult than it would be usually. Of course, we all die, but 
Um, the unknown and the unpredictability of the coronavirus means that the, you know, the feelings of uncertainty and fear are palpable. And you know, you're right, you know, there are leaders across the political spectrum who are coming out with nonsense, who stand for nonsense and who need to be called out. So yeah, the world is in a state of flux. And I suppose I want to use my role as mayor to be a, a steadying, supportive hand to the people in this community. I mean, Haringey is one of the more diverse boroughs of London from you have the very middle class Highgate to more deprived areas in the Northeast. 38% of your constituents are from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups. And strikingly, there are over 180 languages spoken. How do you manage such a diverse district such as Haringey? Well, I'm lucky. I've lived here my entire life. So when you are born in and are of a, as you say, a, a diverse, um, uh, inclusive, but also challenging and complex community, it it makes it easier to 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 get on with my day job because I know and I am from this part of town. Right? I, I haven't thought, oh, I know. I want to be a politician. Let me go and choose somewhere to stand. You know, part of the reasons. I am now mayor. Part of the reasons I ran for the council in the first place, part of the reasons I'm interested in politics um, is because I'm from here and I've been shaped by the experiences of this community and what makes it. I've been shaped by the challenges that people who live in it face and experience. And, uh, but I am I'm acutely conscious of the need to ensure that we carry people with us. We bring people together and people don't fall by the side. And, you know, when I was sworn in on October the 1st, I was, um, uh, you know, but not quite an inauguration speech, but, uh, you, had, you know, the mayor has to give a speech once elected. And, you know, I spoke about the fact that we can't walk by on the other side and we have to, where possible, hold, you know, hold hands, walk together and fight the bigots and the haters at every stage, but also celebrate and highlight our diversity and our difference, because that's what makes us great. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you said earlier, because it's widely reported that your tenet, if that's uh, the right word, calls for kindness and courtesy. I mean, we certainly can do with some of that in bucket loads at the moment. Um, sure. do, you, do you still stand by those rules? And does, does kindness and courtesy work in a place like North London or the North London of today? And the reason why I ask is because the borough is kind of like an anomaly. I get conflicting reports. On the one hand, I read that Haringey has the highest number of injuries from knife crime in London and has the second highest rate of drug use amongst 15 year olds of all London boroughs. And then on the other hand, I read that hate crime is actually on the decrease which is more than we can say about many other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, look, the specific question was, do I uh, still, um, what's the word, uh, follow the rule of thumb that courtesy and kindness is important? Well, of course, Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it has to be the rule of thumb and I'm determined as mayor to make it so. Uh, most cities, in fact, all cities have challenges around crime and community safety, have challenges around um, uh, income inequality, and I think income inequality is at the root of many of our social challenges uh, in the world today. You know, the world collectively has had a decade or more of uh, austerity, and that will inevitably have had an impact on uh, how people feel, 
uh, on, on how people behave. But more importantly, it has an impact on the state's ability to support those in need. So, you know, I think there are, there, there are political elements to how um, and what the challenges look like. But of course, kindness and courtesy has a role to play in politics. Um, uh, certainly here in, in, in my neck of the woods, and it's, you know, certainly they are two of the values and the principles that drive me uh, every day. Thinking about it, it's also what I believe, you know, I'm not yeah. saying, didn't think that's the case, but I, I think it's important that it's, you know, um, I'm almost, I'll be 29 in a few weeks, and at my age, having spent almost seven years on the council, if you aren't in this to make life better and to be sensible, and to be decent and to be fair and to be respectful, then you shouldn't be in this game at all. So, um, you know, that's not to say you don't get wound up by people. That's not to say you don't sometimes rise to the bait. But um, if your basic and guiding principle isn't kindness and courtesy, then, uh, then you're in trouble. Yeah, I mean, you're 29 years old and quite rightly, um, you're Almost. <laughs> Almost okay. <laughs> uh, quite quite rightly, you're promising to be a beacon of hope for the youth of Haringey. To, to quote you in a recent story, my generation is becoming increasingly apathetic about politics because they just don't think that anybody cares about them. I speak to my friends, and they always tell me that if I get elected, then at least there will be someone in the council who can speak for young people. Uh, is all that going to plan? I hope so. I think so. Um, I mean, I, I think part of part of part of politics and part of making sure people are included and involved is about representation. And if people feel that they're, they're, that they have in their elected representatives folks who look like them, who understand them, who are of and for and from them, then they will be engaged by the very nature of saying, oh, hey, you know what, not only can I vote or should I vote, but I could run for office too. And I, you know, I, I well, it's interesting because uh, just thinking out loud that, um, you know, politics and politics is a very personal thing in the sense that I put myself forward. I think I'm good, which is why I, I ran. I think I'm worthy of people's support. Every other politician must think that if they stand for office. But coming with that approach, though, of course, attracts haters and detractors. And you know, there's only one seat and there may be four people who want the nomination or the rest of it. And, you know, I got involved very, very young and I was, gosh, think about it, so funny. I was very much, um, you know, the kind of person who people wouldn't mind, oh yeah, Adam's great, you can deliver leaflets. But then when it came to Adam wants to be something, or Adam wants to run, oh, well, hold on, let's see, let's think, oh, I'm not sure, maybe need some more experience. And I always told myself that I'd never been in a position where I would ever um, not help carry people up the ladder behind me, you know, and I would never not be willing to engage or embrace or support people's interests. I mean, I'll, later this afternoon, I'm speaking to um, a university class at a, a local university because you know it's about the next generation and although I'm still very very young and of course with my uh, with my roots great uh, great genes so you know look very young of course uh, but I um, you know I, I am getting older and society is moving on time's moving on and you want to make sure that there is a next generation behind you to carry out the mantle. Yeah, uh, what, what, what's your take on the political situation right now in Zimbabwe Adam? I mean despite all of its issues it's still undoubtedly one of the best places to visit. Oh, Zimbabwe is 
uh, it's heaven on earth, right? I mean, from you know Kariba to the falls to uh, the Chimali Mali Mountains. I mean, you know, the the um, the the landscape, the people, uh, the culture, the jacaranda trees. Uh, you know, the 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 in some ways the the politics, if you put it to one side, not that you can, obviously, because it has an impact on everything and everyone, but if you put it to one side, Zimbabwe is just the most magical place, and I very much uh, uh, love it and look forward to going home soon. But um, what do I make of the political situation? Well, you know, the benefit of being mayor, of course, is one doesn't engage in day-to-day -day political combat, but uh, Zimbabwe, like all of us, is crying out for good government, is crying out for sound leadership, and it's crying out for um, the kind of program and focus and policies that will genuinely empower people, that will put money in the pockets of uh, everyday Zimbabweans, that will have functioning public services, and that will have uh, an economy and a society that does its people justice. And, you know, there is some way to go on that. Mm. I think one of the most wonderful sites uh was to watch all the millions of people out on the streets, including the army, mm. uh, celebrating Mugabe's ouster. Sadly, that was simply smoke and mirrors in the end. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, in fact, it was about this time three years ago, wasn't it? 2017. That's right, yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I remember I got a Zimbabwean flag and I watched up to uh, Zimbabwe house on the Strand. And, you know, there were black Zimbabweans, there were Asians, there were mixed uh, race Zimbabweans, there were whites. I mean, it was wonderful to see the cosmopolitan fabric that um, uh, is the Zimbabwean diaspora in, in, in London, certainly, and probably further afield uh, in the UK, come together to, I suppose, reiterate our love and support for uh, Zimbabwe, but also our solidarity with those who are doing the same, as you noted, uh, in, in the CBD in, in Hari. So, um, yeah, it was it was magical to see. It is always powerful to see the people say, you know, this is where we are and this is what we want. And it's for the leaders to listen. Um, Adam, you're a busy man and we're almost out of time. Now, we know of one other London mayor who went on to becoming prime minister. <clears throat> Can we expect anything from you in the future? Uh, I am very, very happy being Mayor of Harangay. Uh, I'm even happier to be the member for Hornsey on the council and I look forward to, uh, to, to doing both those roles for as long as I want it. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I think we should end on one of your quotes, Adam. I'm not going into politics because I want to be a politician, but because I want to be part of finding a solution. Wise words indeed, sir. Well, yeah, I, I, um, that, that, that approach is still very much uh, what drives me. And I think the day that I'm stopped, uh, I've stopped being motivated by wanting to find solutions and help people is probably the day it's time to hang up my boots. But I'm not there yet. And I've, you know, as long as the people want me here, I've got a long way to go. Hello, my guest today has absolutely no connection to Zimbabwe or indeed Africa. She does, however, have a deep connection to me despite us never having met. In 2011, New Zealand author DJ Connell wrote a book called 
Julian Corkle is a Filthy Liar, a book that had me rolling in the aisle laughing and crying in equal measures. You're probably wondering what the connection is. Well, the story charts the life of a gay teenager growing up in a rural community in Tasmania in the 1960s and 70s. Does that sound familiar? Anyway, DJ Connell is talking to me today from her home in Sydney. So DJ, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. And thank you for having me, Pete. Lovely to be here. Lovely to talk to you. It's wonderful. And I, I'm very, um, I always appreciate people who who get my writing. Of course, I appreciate most people anyway, but I'm very appreciative. So thank you. <laughs> well, honestly, the book was a triumph and has been described on your Amazon blurb as the ultimate feel-good novel, a book that will have the reader laughing out loud on, on the back of a bus as it follows Julian's bumpy journey through adolescence, fibbing his way through school and a series of dead-end jobs to find his ultimate calling as creator of The Hog. It's as if Crocodile Dundee has crashed Muriel's wedding and run off into the desert with Priscilla. What a great line. Yes, it was very good. The, um, actually, Putty Match magazine, you know, the big, the big photo magazine, Paris Match, Putty Match. Absolutely, they called, yes. They called it the funniest novel of the year. Oh. The French liked it, so... Well, yeah. well, I have to say it had me laughing the whole time, laughing out loud as well, which takes a lot in writing. Um, you know, and I must confess for a long time, I assumed you were a man and was quite surprised that a woman would write a story about a gay boy growing up in Tassie. What's the connection and, and what inspired you to write the book? Well, um, obviously I am part of the LGBTQ I community, but I'm I'm not a very I don't behave in any way that um, I never follow rules. So I'm I'm a freedom fanatic. But you know I've had lovers on both sides of both. Well, actually, in two, two genders I should say. Anyway, um, so I'm part. It's part of my tribe, part of my community. And look, most of my friends. Most of my male friends are gay, not all. I have great, I've got three straight brothers as well. Um, but I, I, I have, and I, and I had friends from Tasmania as well. So I had a thing about, I wanted to set, I wanted to set a funny story about a kind of a, 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 an odd character who thinks he's a player, even though he's obviously not. Um, someone who's deluded a bit, but also kind of lovable because he never gives up. And he makes so many mistakes and stumbles through. But at the same time, we needed to have, I wanted him to, because the seventies, look, my gay friends had terrible times. Gay male friends had terrible times in the seventies and eighties. It was a terrible time really. And then of course with um, HIV AIDS, it made life very difficult in the eighties, but this is before that. And mm. so I wanted to sit in a community where, where it was a bit, probably a bit more obvious because you know, Tasmania, before they put high-speed ferries to, to the island, was a very, it's quite isolated really, because you had to take a slow ferry or a, or a plane to get there. So it meant that there was that small island mentality. And also it was a criminal offense for two gay men to have sex, consenting sex until quite recently. I can't remember. I mean, I think it was 
might have even been 2000. It was around the time of my book. Yeah, anyway. Which is incredible because Adelaide, just across the, the, the water, had a gay mayor or a gay governor uh, many, many years ago. And, and Adelaide is known as one of those churchy, churchy towns or churchy cities. I know it was an odd thing. It was um, it's probably to do with, it, with Tasmania being slightly isolated and having probably conservative governments, so I'm not quite sure why. But it was a very strange thing. In fact, around the time the book came out, um, there was a story about two gay, gay men setting up, setting up a, um, they'd, been, they'd been buying this town, which was kind of cheap, the shop fronts, and they were, set, they were changing, it, changing it into, they were going to make it sort of a tourist destination, a coastal town. I can't remember the name of the town. It might even have even been called Penguin. Anyway, they kind of got ran out, run out of town. This was, this was only, what, 10, 15 years ago or so. They got run out of town. They had like, um, a kangaroo got nailed to their front door and things like that it was terrible. So <laughs> it was, it's a different place now I hear, but it was, you know, I visited Tasmania twice. Um, anyway. How would you describe your writing genre? Uh, I, yeah, um, actually, uh, I'd say I write about, I don't know, it's hard to put me in a, in a genre. I suppose it's um, family related drama, personal stories. Um, it's always about, it's always about a misfit, someone who's, who's doesn't quite fit and the struggles they have as an outsider. But I think I use humor as the, the vehicle to drive the story forward and keep you reading while perhaps not such funny stuff happens. Uh, you said in an interview that giving up journalism to write novels was like sprouting wings. Yeah. Why did you actually decide to take that leap and give up journalism? Because journalism is kind of like the bread and butter and going into writing novels is a, a completely different world. So I suppose what it is, is and, and I suppose my bread and butter by that stage was advertising with a little bit, I, I did bits and pieces of features and things, but mostly it was advertising. That's how I was. And, you are really boxed into what your client client thinks is best, even though they don't always know what's best. And so you'd write something beautiful and it would be destroyed all the time, time and time again, time and time again. And and actually it was a very good, it was a very good training because as a novelist, as you know, or a writer, as you know, you have to kill, you have to, you can't be too precious with your work. So you have to kill your darling. Kill your that's it, that's what they call it, yes. Kill your darling. Yeah. So, but it's crushing. It's crushing because you can never really take pride in what you do because someone's going to wreck it. And also, who's, who's going to appreciate that? How many, how many air conditioners, how many, how many um, uh, computers, cars, motorbikes do you want to sell? Do you want to go to, do you want to die and say, I was great. I sold a lot of motorcycles for um, Yamaha or cars for Honda <laughs> or, you know, this sort of thing. Um, so... Yes, um, I, to create is a wonderful thing. Now, now your other novel, Sherry Cracker Gets Normal, is another very funny book, but again, a story about someone who just isn't quite normal. No. Yet, despite that, there's always, once again, something serious going on in your books. Is this fundamental to your writing or who you are as a human being? Um, I think... It is me. I think 
I am somebody who does live on the fringes anyway. I, I'm, I certainly don't do things in a normal way. I often think probably one of the reasons I feel more comfortable with my tribe is we've all had to fight to be who we are. So we, yeah. we're battle scarred and we, we know compromise. We know we have, we have, we have anything that we are today. We, we're just so much more, usually more tolerant and more open-minded, I think, because of, yeah. because of what we've had to endure. Or... Is it safe to say that nowadays you're more into movie making? Um, in fact, wasn't Julian Corkle picked up by Sarah Ratcliffe? Yes. Uh, who is the producer of the brilliant My Beautiful Laundrette. And I can see the parallels between the two, uh, the two movies. Was the movie ever made? The movie, um, well, there's no, there's still, well, it, as you know, the movie business grinds on. It takes years and years and years to, for something to develop. And no, they're still 100% behind it. They're still working on it. It's. I have complete faith in them, actually, that something will happen. But then we've got COVID at the moment, so mm. people can't make movies. Um, it's um, Sarah, actually, Sarah and Marion McGowan bought it. So it's, a, it's an Australian-British co-production, which is quite, which is always good because it means that funding sources from both countries is possible, are possible, do you know? And so, you know, the, it's still in the works and um, hopefully the new book might find um, her. Because, I mean, it's, I write in a reasonably visual way, so it's, um, I think my writing lends itself to, to. Yeah. Now you once said that it was important to bring a little sunshine into people's lives. So before we actually go, do you have a message to all the thousands of young people out there trying to find their identity in a world quite literally bombarded with information. Am I putting you on the spot by asking you? No, absolutely you not, absolutely not. I love to encourage people. You know, I, you know, usually every year I go and teach in Greece in this fantastic island called Skios. I love it. It's like, a, it's a fantastic place. So I I, part of that is I, I teach creative writing. No, so I love, I love encouraging people. Okay, young people. I would like to put that message to young and old actually, because- Yeah. Because, but of course, young people in particular are suffering because their future doesn't looks a bit bleak at the moment. Um, I think if you want to write and you want to create something, you can't, don't cheat, don't cheat. Actually give it your all and, and your voice has to be authentic and original. And it may seem hard, but it's the best way to write because when you write in your real voice, when you write from the heart, when you do the work, you don't just dash something off and think that's good enough, I can't look at it. You go back and you weigh up your words and you play with them, you let it sit, you come back to it. Every, as they say, every word should earn its place on the page. I agree with that, it's absolutely true. You might not get that the first time around or the second. The gold is in the editing. So write your, dash off your story, Have a create a structure, dash off your story or dash off your book or whatever you're going to do, and then go back and work it and work it. And do it with a song in your heart. Don't do it because writing is not easy because it is work. You have to sit down and you mm -hmm. half the time you hate yourself and you hate what you're doing. I mean, I don't know. I struggle. But you've just got to drive past that. And if you're driven and if you're compelled to do it and if you are honest with yourself 
and you write, you write honestly. You don't just say good enough or you don't, you know, if you don't, because we've all got a story and we've all got a unique, unique voice. You find it and you follow it and you tap into that vein of gold. But it's very easy to get crushed. But don't let yourself get crushed if you know that's what you should be doing and what you want to do. And there's something beautiful. Look, it's beautiful to create things. It's, it's magic. It's magic. And you just keep going. You keep doing it. I'm, I'm going to end off on a quote from you, which I think is important. It's quite a long one. So I hope I don't stumble here. The only way I can write or draw is to be alone. But while the journey is private, my overriding motivation is a public one. I create for others. I do it with the intention of bringing some form of happiness into people's lives. My intention is to uplift, stimulate, provoke, inspire, to make others think and hopefully laugh. In the final episode of season two, I was delighted to speak to Angelica, Dowager Countess Corda, about her life in Corda Castle. For anyone who loves Shakespeare, they'll know that Corda Castle was the home of Macbeth. It's also home to Dowager Countess Corda. Angelica Dowager Countess Corda was brought up in Rhodesia by parents who fled Czechoslovakia during the Second World War. And she's here today to chat to me about her early life growing up in the Southern African country. And of course, her life in the 14th century castle in the north of Scotland. So Dowager Countess Corda, Welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. I'm delighted to be here, Peter. We'll, we'll get to your childhood in a moment, but if we may, I think we should begin with a little refresher on the real Macbeth. It seems that Shakespeare took a fair amount of artistic license when writing the Scottish play, because although the castle dates back to the 14th century, Macbeth was set in the 11th century. Indeed. And um, I have for years been trying to reestablish the reputation of arguably the best King of Scotland ever, who was Macbeth. Macbeth was an extraordinary king. He um, reigned for, I think it was 15 years, when at the time the reign generally was about five years. He was able to go to Rome with his wife, Brura. Um, and they were away for three years. When he came back, he still had a throne. So, you know, that all just shows to what extent he was a remarkable, remarkable king. And, and, ob and obviously must, much loved by his people. Much loved by his people. And his reputation has been dragged through the mud by the wonderful Shakespeare. But still, I think Macbeth deserves better. Because, because, you know, every school child across the world has had to, you know, do the Scottish play at one point or another and, um, and thinks that this is a murderer, you know, who killed people in their beds. Of course he killed people. Everybody did at the time. That was normal warfare. But he actually killed Duncan in battle in a place called Spiney, not very far from here. And um, yeah, Duncan died on the battlefield. 
I mean, Duncan, uh, King Duncan died honorably, although, you know, admittedly uh, at the hands of Macbeth. In a battle on the battlefield. Never and let course, the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> I'm afraid that's very much the case. No, you know, Macbeth, and of course, um, for Corder Castle, which, as you said, was built in the 14th century, round about 1370, um, our best public relations, of course, is Shakespeare. We get normally, not this year, but normally we get around 100,000 visitors from all over the world um, because of Shakespeare, because of the Scottish play. Um, Angelica, as custodian of Cawdor Castle, you have, rightly or wrongly, well, been referred to as Lady Macbeth. How do you react to that? Because Shakespeare's <laughs> Lady Macbeth was the overly ambitious wife of Macbeth who persuaded him to murder King Duncan in his bed. Um, you must feel a little uneasy when the press call you Lady Macbeth. I'm afraid I don't feel uneasy about anything the press can say. But I hope you don't walk around Cawdor Castle shouting out damned spot. Unless, of no. course, Spot is your naughty Cocker Spaniel. Not at all, not at all. Um, Corda, if you ever come and see it, is an extraordinary house because it has very, very strong energy and it doesn't take on the energy of anybody else, not the people who live here or the people who come through it. It's, um, it's, a, it's a very beneficial house. And one of the things that visitors do remark on quite often in the visitor's book is, um, is how peaceful and jolly the house is compared to what they imagined Corda Castle to be. Okay, can you tell me about the gardens and some of the works of art? Yes, of course I can. We have three gardens, which is quite unusual for a Scottish castle of the date of Corda. Um, the oldest of the gardens was a wonderful vegetable garden, but actually for some reason the tourists decided it was a free supermarket. And so they decided to pull up the onions and you know, take the carrots and so on. Finally, the head gardener had enough when the local, the vicar was picking his strawberries under the strawberry net. And so he sort of blew a gasket and Hugh said, calm down, calm down, Andy. He was called Andy Wood. Um, now we'll, we'll close the garden and we will create a non-edible garden. So that's what we now have. In the wall garden, we have a maze, paradise garden, the earth garden and an orchard. It's basically the maze was Hugh's part of the garden and the others are my symbolic gardens. Then we have a flower garden that dates back to the 18th century and a wild garden, it dates back to the 19th century. So we're well supplied in gardens. And of course, the castle itself. I mean, for those who haven't seen pictures of the castle, it's the traditional stuff of tourist dreams, imposing gray stone exteriors, complete with crenellated parapets, portraits of Campbell of Cawdor ancestors, tapestries, velvet uh, canopied beds. It's got all of it, hasn't it? It certainly does. So go on to our website. Um, which is quartercastle.com and, uh, and have a look. It's well worth coming to see if you're in this part of the world. 
Absolutely, it sounds absolutely divine. Now, and Angelica, you were brought up in Rhodesia by parents who fled Czechoslovakia during the Second World War. Of course, um, you later married Hugh Campbell in 1979 and remained with him until his death in 1992. By all accounts, it was a, a very happy and successful marriage. It was. Hugh was an extraordinary man. And as your cousin who knew him well will tell you, he was great fun, never a dull moment. And um, he was very erudite, loved Corda, and um, he was the one who opened it to the public in 1976. And, you know, he, he took real pride in, in what he'd achieved to do that. Angelica, you said that you're trying to address the history of Macbeth. How are you doing that? Are you doing that with brochures in the, uh, well, on, your, on your website? It's, it's in the brochures. It's, you know, we have little handouts. And whenever um, there is the possibility of saying to some of the elected officials, should we not have a monument to Scotland's greatest king, Macbeth, Hmm. I'm trying, but I'm not there yet. You'll get there, I'm sure. Let's so. move on to Rhodesia. Do you remember much of your childhood growing up in of Rhodesia? Of course. I adored my childhood from the age of six to 18 in Rhodesia. You know, that it just, just was so wonderful. And um, I'm sure ma many of your listeners have read your book, but... Um, I loved it. I really loved it. It brought back so many memories of places and names and things. But of course, my Rhodesia was completely different from yours. And I thank God that I did not have to go through what you had to go through. Because uh, you left a, in the 1970s, did you? No, I left in, in March of 1962. Oh, my goodness. I wasn't even born then. I was I born in July 1962. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, I, you know, I had finished school at the end of 61 and I left for, I knew that, you know, my life would not be in Africa. And so I really left Rhodesia. And, and where did but you live in Rhodesia, Angelica? We lived, well, when we arrived, of course, and um, as refugees, the world's your oyster because you have nothing and so you know you start again and so we were sitting in the Meekles hotel for a bit while my father looked for a farm which um, we bought in um, near Beatrice it was called Canterbury Farm glorious place 24 miles south of Salisbury and um, and that was my childhood and of course um, I had to go to school. My, I have an elder sister who's 10 years older than I. And so while we were in the Meekles Hotel, we went to day school in the Dominican convent. Um, but neither of us spoke the language. So we had to learn quite quickly, which we did. Goodness, and you didn't speak English. No, of course we didn't. We spoke Czech and German. Oh, wow. And so, um, so yeah, it was a little bit, you know, a sharp learning curve, but that was fine. And then once Papa had bought the farm with the bank's money, um, we had to be boarders. And because I was six years old, 
the nuns took pity on me and said I could go home for weekends, which was my saving grace. So on Friday afternoon, Papa used to come and fetch me and I came back to school on Monday morning. That was supposed to be only, you know, while I was not, while I couldn't speak English properly, but I managed, thank God, to keep that all the way through. Every time I, you know, my grades took a dive, the, you know, Sister Virginia would say, well, perhaps we'll have to, you know, stop you leaving for the weekend to make you work harder. Immediately, my grades went back up again. And, you know, till the end, I had this privilege of leaving the school on, on the Friday afternoon. And I it's, adored my life on the farm. It sounds like you got on well with the nuns as well. My gran went to the convent and she hated the nuns. She felt that she said that they were terribly cruel to her. No, can't complain at all. They were perfectly nice to me. And, um, and really no very, no, they, they, in a funny way, I suppose they were almost sort of pioneers in those days, um, no, I'm talking about 1950 and 51, um, the headmistress had come to Rhodesia with Cecil Rhodes. And, you know, she was a wonderful woman. And I'm sure they could be tricky, but I got on very well with them. Can't, can't really complain at all. And um, yeah, so I, I, you know, spent every weekend at home. And, um, what made me smile, which in fact made me decide that I would talk to you, was the title of your book, your lovely book, um, Mud Between My Toes. Oh, thank you so and much. I'll tell you why that struck a chord, is I suppose it was in 1954, three or four perhaps, we had an awful drought and our maize was starting to look like onions and the tobacco mm. plants were drooping their leaves and they were starting to burn on the ground. And, oh dear me. And since I, you know, by this time was a very religious girl, I prayed when I saw these beautiful black clouds coming towards us. I mm. prayed, really prayed, please, 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 please. You know, it's life and death, we need this. And all of a sudden, the clouds decided to go away. I got so furious, I really gave a rocket to God. And I said, you know, finished. I don't believe in anything anymore. Forget it, etc." And then all of a sudden, that wonderful thing, you know, when the first drop of rain drops, mm. it splatters like a sunburst in, in the dry soil. And I stared because I saw the clouds go away. And, but I was, uh, a house was just behind a couple and I was facing, obviously, I, I wasn't aware of what was behind me. And all of a sudden, this fantastic downpour. And I will always remember that feeling of your toes is sinking into the mud. We were saved. Now, if people want to find out more about Cordor Castle, they can simply go to the website, cordorcastle.com. Exactly. exactly, exactly. So will you 
before we go, permit me to make a complete fool of myself. Um, I was looking for a quote from Macbeth that wasn't depressing, but they're all rather maudlin, I have to say. Um, but I'm going to leave you with these incredibly powerful words. I hope that I can do it justice. So, you know, bear with me. Tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Very good. You have a career on the stage in front of you. Of course, it's about the death of Lady Macbeth, and there's absolutely no meaning there. I, I was simply trying to find something that I could actually read. Uh, but sadly, we're actually out of time. Dowager Countess Angelica Corda, it has been an honor and a thousand thanks for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. It's been a pleasure, Peter, and it's brought back many wonderful old memories. A pleasure. You've just listened to snippets from my interviews with Jack Milbank, Councillor Adam Joggy, author DJ Connell, and Angelica Dowager Countess Corda from Corda Castle. This is the last in my season two series. I'll be taking a few weeks off to begin research and interviews for a brand new season later in the year. Thank you for supporting me and please keep listening. If you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>